All right. Well, <clears throat> I don't know if any of you all know uh, what the Hagia Sophia is. Anybody know what that is? Okay, we've got one. Good. So if you want to look it up, it's H-A-G-I-A. Second word, S-O-F-I-A. Hagia Sophia. And for a thousand years, it was the world's largest cathedral. It still has one of the largest masonry domes in, uh, in all of modern architecture. So think about like the New Orleans Superdome, but something was constructed in, the, in like 532, okay, it's AD. So it's obviously it's really old, over a thousand years old. And what's more amazing is that because where it's located in Istanbul, Turkey, earthquakes are common there. Um, so how's it stood up for so long? Well, one of the interesting things about the Hagia Sophia is it has this hidden secret. And in that hidden secret, it is the cement that holds the Hagia Sophia together is from, a Mediter- is from an island in the Mediterranean, and it has a special property. And that is that oh, uh, over the last 1,500 years, the, c- the cement that holds the Hagia Sophia's dome together never, has never fully set, and it still has not fully set. So that means when earthquakes happen, and it sends little cracks and fissures through the, uh, through the church, they're fixed as soon as it rains, and water seeps in and it seals that ancient mortar tight. And that's a picture of what I want us to talk about this morning, that in a very real sense, the Hagia Sophia is a self-healing church. And in a spiritual sense, that's what we're called to be as well. So when cracks and fissures run through our congregation, our culture should lean so strongly toward unity that by the grace of God, they heal up. So just like the Hagia Sophia, we should be a self-healing church. Now, we also ought to recognize that cracks and fissures will happen in our midst because we are sinful people who've been redeemed to a holy God. And so we're going to, we're going to rub one another the wrong way. There's going to be some disunity that creeps in now and again. But what we do with that unity or that disunity will be what identifies or defines who we are. And so we want to be a self-healing church. But of course, in a congregation that should be marked by diversity, that's much easier said than done for that very reason that we've already mentioned, that we are a sinful people. In a church full of people who are different from me, it's easy to be overlooked, to be forgotten, to be misunderstood, to be under, uh, undervalued, or to be offended. And what do we do when those times come? Do we just simply grin and bear it? Do we let them have it, or is it some balance of the two? So this morning, I want us to look beyond the Hagia Sophia to the original self-healing church. Not Istanbul, but Jerusalem. Not 532, but 33 AD. So in Acts chapter 6, where in the space of a few sentences, we see a remarkable model for what it looks like to work through disunity together as a congregation. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Acts chapter 6. If you don't, it's okay. You'll find it in your handout this morning. So let's peer over the shoulder of this first New Testament church and see what they do and how that might help us this morning. So Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching, give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, 
whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, and a a, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and they laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. So now to understand what's going on here, we need, a, we need a bit of context. So you'll recall from all the work we did in Ephesians 3, the first few weeks of this class, how important we talked about that unity is between Jew and Gentile, uh, how, how important that is uh, to the church. Well, it's not quite what's going on here. So these people, the passage calls Hebrews, and the people that this passage calls Hellenists were probably both of Jewish descent. So the Hellenists were Jews from across the Roman Empire who had gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. The Hebrews were Jews from Palestine. So Hellenists would have been more comfortable in a Greek culture, Hebrews in a Jewish culture. Hellenists would have been more comfortable speaking Greek, Hebrews, Aramaic. Contemporary historians wrote about the animosity between these two So that unity between these two would have been something that would have been remarkable. Not quite the gulf between Jew and Gentile, but a big difference nonetheless. So the gospel asserts that unity in Christ is stronger than worldly difference. So the apostles faced a natural fault line that threatened the unity. So under their leadership, what did the first church do? Well, for the rest of the class, that's what we're going to be working through. We're going to work through five observations about how this first church safeguarded its unity. Let's look at the, at the first one. You'll find these in your handout as well. Number one, pay attention to what threatens church unity. Pay attention to what threatens church unity. So just a bunch of widows complaining about food, right? Not worth paying much attention to. I'm sure that's what most people in that society would have thought, but not this church. Just think what's going on in verse 2. The 12 call together the full number of the disciples. There, there may well have been thousands of people, nearly every Christian on earth. That's how seriously they take widows. That's how seriously they take unity. So the apostles leapt into action because this was much more than a food distribution problem. What was threatened was the claim that Christ is more powerful than whatever might separate. So this unity issue was a gospel issue. This unity was a gospel issue. That's why they took action. And that's why I suspect Luke features this story so prominently in the book of Acts. So the gospel will only survive for so long if it's not reflected in the community that proclaims it. Okay, And what I mean by that is not that, uh, that the Lord's not... I'm not saying the Lord is not sovereign over all things... Yes, the Lord's purposes will full and finally be accomplished, regardless of our uh, obedience or not, right? Uh, Because the Lord doesn't need me to fulfill the Great Commission. The Lord invites me to participate in the Great Commission and be obedient to Him in being a proclaimer of Christ. So I don't mean finally, but what I mean is our gospel witness, okay? Our gospel witness as UBC will only survive for so long if it's not reflected in the community that proclaims it. Disunity should not 
surprise us. Okay? Should not surprise us. Later in the same book, as Paul's addressing the Ephesian elders, he warns them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Acts 20, 29, and 30. Sometimes sheep nip at each other. They scratch and they bite. And the church calls you and I sheep. And sometimes it turns out that they're not sheep at all, but wolves who want to tear the flock apart. Threats to unity deserve our attention. That's our first observation. Pay attention to what threatens church unity. Second, take responsibility to protect church unity. So I find it fascinating what the apostles do next. And this is a really big deal. The gospel's at stake here, so they address the problem, right? No. They gather the whole church together and then basically throw this problem back to the church. It is not right, they say, that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom you will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they don't tell the church how to solve the problem. They simply tell them to select seven men to solve the problem. And they don't even tell the church who these seven men should be. This is some serious hands-off management. That's because as much as we need good leadership, protecting unity is our job as the congregation. Protecting unity is our job as the congregation. We are those who must maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. That's our job. So that has some pretty significant implications. For one, it means that we're at a fault line of unity in a congregation. We don't have the option to retreat into some hole in the ground and wait until things just simply blow over, right? So when there is disunity, we don't just get to retreat and wait until things blow over. Why? Because we've already identified it's our job to protect unity. So we must own this unity as our responsibility and our stewardship. We must own this unity as our responsibility and our stewardship. So if you've been offended, overlooked, misunderstood, forgotten, undervalued in this congregation, you need to do something about it. Not, though, to fight for your rights and respect, but to fight for unity. So the call of the Christian is not, I respect myself. Rather, I respect Christ, whose image I bear and whose image we bear together. Implication number two, and that means that often counterintuitively doing something to protect unity will mean doing nothing or not doing something. Okay, That means it's overlooking an offense. Proverbs 19.11 tells us, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is His glory to overlook an offense. Of course, it's hard for us to know sometimes that pursuing unity is best served by overlooking. How do, we, how do we reconcile that? How do we think about when or when not 
to pursue unity by overlooking. Clearly, in this case, the apostles decided they needed to address it, right? They, they called the church and they said appoint seven men to address this problem. But simply making unity our goal rather than serving ourselves is a huge step forward. In other words, when we take the position that our desire is to be a unifier of the church rather than to be right, okay? Uh, in marriage counseling, often you'll hear, or at least I, I've used before, um, seek to resolve, not to win, right? So there's a, there's a, the idea is that you can win, you can win an argument with your spouse and you can still lose the battle, right? Because you were right, great, but at what cost? So seek to resolve, seek to resolve not to win. All right, so simply making unity our goal rather than serving ourselves is a huge step forward. Here's some guidelines to keep in mind. When someone's sin is dangerous for them, either because it's serious or because it's repeated, you should choose to address it. Okay, I think we could go a little stronger scripturally and say you must address it. When someone's sin becomes an impediment to your relationship, you need to address it. When your brother has sinned against you, um, you need to address it as the Bible prescribes that we address it. Okay, or as one theologian put it, when it diminishes your affections for them. Of course, that may be a humbling thing to admit since if you were a better person, you could just overlook it perhaps, right? But since when do relationships not require humility? Okay, a third implication. We should expect our elders, we shouldn't expect our elders to solve these problems, at least not on their own. Okay, someone comes to an elder and says, our church struggles with X. What's the implication? Fix it right? And then they're somehow surprised when the elders come alongside them to help them to determine what they can do about the problem. Elders and other church leaders do have a role, and we'll get to that in just a bit. But we need to remember that protecting unity is our responsibility. So implication number three, addressing disunity is something our leaders can help us do. Okay, number three, be reluctant to take sides. Be reluctant to take sides. So one thing that jumps out when you look at this passage is the apostles care to avoid putting themselves on either the Hellenist or the Hebrew side of the argument. Okay, there's no mention here of where the apostles made any effort to investigate whether the Hellenist widows were actually being neglected. Apparently, simply the perception of favoritism was enough problem for them. Okay, there was a perceived um, idea that the Hellenists were being neglected, and the apostles said, that's all that we need to know. They don't need to hear or take sides any further beyond recognizing there's a problem. So there's no dividing of the congregation. The apostles meeting first the Hellenists and then the Hebrews instead, Luke writes that the apostles summoned the full number of the church. Then, when they speak with the congregation, there's no mention whatsoever of any kind of factional divide, no, no favoritism. And then one thing the apostles do to solve the problem, directing that the seven men be chosen, would be, seem uh, designed to keep the congregation from having equal representation from both sides of the diaconal committee. The apostles are certainly not blind to the division that created this conflict, but in no way are they going to enshrine that division in anything they do about it. Okay, so I think there's a world of good wisdom for us here. And that's this. So often, 
we, fa- we value ourselves above the unity in the congregation. And one way we do this is by recognizing factions in the congregation. Okay, so we do that when we talk to other people. You know, we poor people in this church struggle with X. And those, those popular people, they have Y. Okay? As if I can speak for all the members of that group. As an elder, one of my favorite ones is uh, I've talked to a few people. Who are they? Uh, well, just the people. So oftentimes we, we unintentionally, we're trying to say, hey, this is a big deal to me. And so we bring it as if, and perhaps you did talk with someone else. Um, but then even still, could that be gossip? Rather than just going to your brother and saying, hey, uh, such and such happened. And, and I need you to know that I, you know, this was offensive or hurtful or harmful to me. Okay, so be careful in those kinds of things. So we do that in the way that we act. And as we talk about a problem, only with people we know feel the same way. So we even do that in the way we think when we assume that a particular group of people will have the same attitude towards an issue. But we need to recognize how dangerous this is, in fact, for our congregation. That this would simply be an example of abusing our similarities, as we talked about last week. And at at its extreme, Paul lists dissensions and factions alongside sorcery, idolatry, and sexual immorality as works of the flesh in Galatians, 5, in Galatians 5.20. Okay, and he mocks the Corinthian church for thinking this way. He says in 1 Corinthians 11.19, no doubt there, ha- there have to be differences or factions as the ESV to show which of you have God's approval. So we do not want to create, perpetuate, or encourage factions in any way in the church. You look back at your handout, you'll see this next blank there. And we should be careful to not implicitly ask our leaders to take sides when we bring problems to them. So when you need to bring the church leaders in, tell them that. Hey, I need some counsel. But remember that the elders and deacons are people pleasers too. Okay, Because why? We're sinful, we're not perfect. So we may be prone to want to please man as well. So help, help the elders and deacons to avoid that pressure to simply want to make you happy by making it clear that you have no expectation in bringing a problem to them, that they're going to see things the way that you see them. You're asking for their objective, God-honoring, biblical counsel on an issue. And that necessarily means that that might put you outside of what your hope is in that situation. But that's, what, that's where humility comes in. That's where humility really has the opportunity to lay our own hearts bare before the Lord and say, hey, there's, there's this issue, there's this, cre- there's this faction or this division, and I don't know what's, what the Bible has to say about it, but I need you to help me see through it because it's cause, it, causing disunity in my own heart. But recognizing that may end up just in your need to, to repent of your divisiveness, and even if it was just between one brother, right, is it still, if it's our responsibility, then we need to own, own our part in division and disunity. All right, so one great way to avoid taking sides is to spend time with people on the other side. So it's easy to pigeonhole or stereotype or straw man people you don't know well, okay? Um, for years, 
I thought when we, my wife and I were early married, I always thought it would be great if she would sit down and write a book called They Say, because they talk a lot. Well, you know, they say that you can't, you know, you, you know, they say you need to cross cut your lawn. You can't mow it the same way every time. You know, they say you can't, you know, hang dry sweaters or whatever. And I would say, who, where did you read this stuff? Well, it was in a magazine. So I wanted to write a book called They Say with all of the They Say wisdom, right? And that's, what, that's just illustrating the straw man uh, side of things. Like, well, you know, you know what they say. No, who are they? She still hasn't written that book, and I still think it would be awesome. All right? You know they say it'd be awesome. So if you're a Hellenist widow being overlooked, ask a Hebrew man how you can pray for his family. Okay? Go out of your way to love those who are different from you in this congregation, and you'll probably find that taking sides becomes that much less a temptation because sides don't really seem to exist when we get up from wherever we normally sit Uh, And we're all guilty of this. I think sometimes we pick on our college students as if our college students are the only ones that sit in the same place every week. Guys, here's a little window to it. We've all been doing it for 20 years, okay? You're just not sitting where we want to sit, right? Uh, but, But I think that is a great way that we can do it, is getting up from where you normally sit and going and sitting by someone else that you don't know, right? And just get to know them. Hey, how long have you been a member here? What's your name? Tell me about your family. Um, How can I pray for you this week? Uh, and I get that that sounds so crazy radical. It's really not. Um, we, even just talking with one of our elders this morning, we have uh, some, some uh, places that our elders try to get around the service at the end of the service so we can greet visitors. And uh, so that rotates every month. And one of our elders just thinks, well, why should I continue to sit here if my place to be is over there? I'm just going to sit over there and walk to the back. Uh, well, what happens when he does that is that he and his family get to know other people in the church right? So a great way to avoid taking sides is to spend time with people on the other side, okay? But just like, uh, just like this class, right? We're, we're, we're a bit multi-generational in this class, but we're not accomplishing the purpose of being multi-generational simply by putting people of different ages in the same room, okay? That doesn't accomplish our goal in ministry, but getting to know one another, sharing the stories, learning how we can serve and pray and encourage one another, right? Remembering names, that's a way that we become more intergenerational. It's not simply by putting people in the same building, okay? Let's pause for just a minute there and take any questions that you all may have up to this point. You're all thinking about what they say, aren't you? (laughs) Don't write that book. At least mention me in the credits. Yes, Patterson. We're going to get to that. Yes, I think there is. Yeah, good question. So Patterson asked uh, that in the passage... Uh, that, that it looks like they chose seven men of Greek descent. Was there any reason for that? And, uh, and I think there is, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. Good, good observation. And I think, you know, just while we're waiting on more questions, turkey sandwiches are available. Um, 
But it is a good note. I think, you know, sometimes just rereading the text over and over again, things are going to pop out at you that maybe you'd be likely to, to pass over. <clears throat> Any questions? Any other questions? There's ham is available as well. I feel like if we all closed our eyes. Somebody get up and go get one. All right, let's keep going then. All right, number four, seek and recommend structural solutions. Now, you guys will have to follow me here for a minute because this is, again, if we're owning uh, uh, unity as our responsibility and as our stewardship, then think about how you as an individual in the congregation can walk this out, right? So seek and recommend structural solutions. It sounds a bit theoretical, right? But here's what we mean. So given all the mistrust and tension between the Hellenists and the Hebrews that existed in the first century, it seems unlikely that this is the first time that these two groups had run into difficulty or had, had drama or had disunity amongst them. But rather than simply responding to a general sense of discomfort or existential angst, the apostles were slow to act until they saw an issue that was structural and tangible. Okay, so they didn't see their job as making everyone happy all the time. Okay, because that's neither biblical or realistic. Okay, so just a good thing to note, you will never be able to make everybody happy all of the time. So then what's, what's, what are we left with? Well, I want to obey and honor the Lord, right? And it's the same, it's honestly, it's no different in evangelism. That in evangelism, I think at the end of the day, if the person you're sharing the gospel with is offended, then what you ought to be praying is that they are offended over God's words, not your own, right? And that's okay. All of us find offense at the cross prior to conversion. Uh, you know, there's that part of us that goes, nah, not me, right? So we all get offended at the cross. It's an offensive message, but it ought not to be so because the messenger was offensive. And this is the same in your counsel with one another. Point people to the Bible. And if they take offense, they're taking offense at God's words, not at yours. Okay, so making everyone happy, the apostles didn't see that as their job because it's neither biblical nor realistic. Nor did they simply ignore the problem. Oh, whatever, you know, those, you know, should we give up preaching so that, you know, food distribution happens? That's not what they did. But they waited until they saw something very specific that they could do before they took action. So let me share with you two examples from our congregation's life that may help illustrate this a bit more. So a few years ago, I think a little over two and a half years ago, uh, for as long as I've been around UBC, which is uh, over 20 years in total, when I, including my college time, uh, UBC's always had a 9 o'clock or always had a Sunday school hour. It's not always been a 9 o'clock, but they've always had sort of a Sunday school hour that somewhere along the way we started calling Adult Bible Fellowship, um, but it just means sort of Sunday school, right? And for years and years and years, we, we did that. But we also began to increasingly uh, value and want to see intergenerational ministry happening. We wanted classes like this to take place. We wanted to have older with the younger and younger with the older. We wanted to have all of these people that are UBC begin coming together um, to represent UBC, to learn from one another, to encourage one another. And so a couple of years ago, we had the idea to... Uh, to take a few or about six weeks off in the summers. So we functionally, we said, hey, we're not having our, our normal nine o'clock Sunday school classes anymore for the summer, six weeks. 
And we are going to offer three classes that are around topics we think as elders would be good for our church to, uh, to, to go through and to know. And not only that, the Lord has been very kind to UBC because we have a lot of men that are capable and qualified to teach God's word. And so we thought, well, uh, where do we, how do we get some of these young teachers opportunities to teach? And so anyway, what we did is we said, gosh, we think it'd be good for our ABF leaders to have a break from teaching, to be able to be taught. We think secondarily, it'd be great to have more people um, inter, you know, mingling or co-mingling together. And we have some men that we think uh, could teach this material really well. And so we made the decision to, uh, to sort of blow up our Sunday school uh, program for six weeks. And uh, overall, the first summer, the overwhelming criticism from the first summer was, hey, you said that we, we were doing this in part so we would intermingle. We would have chances to meet people, but we didn't do that. Uh, to which I a little bit scratched my head. Um, and, but what really what they were saying is, you didn't give us enough time to meet one another. So that was a good criticism. So this last summer, we scaled back the teaching time and we encouraged at the end of every class, as many as that I went to, we encouraged at the end of the class, hey, we've got 10 or 15 minutes. You all interact, meet one another. It's what we didn't hear the first week. And so we were able to accomplish that goal. So I say all that to say, it, that decision did not make everyone happy. But the elders felt like it was what was best for the church overall. Okay, and we're not trying to, we weren't trying to be unloving towards people that may not have liked that change. We were just simply saying, hey, we have a responsibility to care for the flock, and this is a way we think we can do that in, in a, even just for a small window, six-week window. Okay? And I anticipate, and, and honestly, kind of what's come out of those six weeks has been a class like this. So since last summer, um, every week, there has been a topical ABF being taught that's running alongside what our, the rest of our classes are doing. And so if at any point you're flipping through the ministry guide and you see the next topical ABF and it piques your interest in something like, oh, I could learn something from, uh, from financial stewardship. Um, there's a six-week class on that. Great. Then it's usually being taught right in the Heritage Hall on the, on the bottom floor. So it's not meant to create disunity. It's meant to meet a need and to cause unity um, in the context of accomplishing the things that we think we ought to be about as a church. Okay, so that's one example. But it's good to know that when a church makes change in response to a nonspecific, generalized, generalized discontent, they risk, the, they, they, they risk causing more problems than solving. So, uh, or as many, I should say. So we might, by making that change, have disrupted um, as many people as we made happy. Now, by God's grace, that at least that hasn't been true to our knowledge. But it's possible. But at the end of the day, it's what the shepherds felt like was best for the care of the sheep. Okay, another example is a bit more theoretical, but if you uh, identify a deficiency in our church, in our church culture, don't assume that because nothing is being done about it right now, the elders haven't noticed that thing. Okay, so it may be that the elders have been praying about it daily for months, but no structural tangible opportunities to change have come up yet. But something is being done. 
the elders are laboring in prayer over that issue until a structural, tangible change can be made to address that issue. So let me say it another way. If you identify a structural, tangible issue in the church, don't hesitate to come to the elders and say, hey, the, the Hellenists are being mistreated. Okay? It may be that the elders are already aware of that and that they're praying about uh, a structural, tangible change that could be happening. It may also be that the elders are just men as well, and we didn't see it, right? So don't hesitate to come to us. It's elders at UBC Fayetteville is where you can get all 10 of us in one fell swoop, okay? All right, a couple of things for us to be, a couple of things for us to be thinking about. So what does that mean for us? Let me give you a few thoughts. Look for structural, tangible solutions when you sense unity problems and bring them to the church leaders. So in other words, let me take that last example I said just one step further. When you see something that's disunifying and you come to the elders, you're most helpful to the elders and to the church when you say, hey, such and such isn't happening and here's the way I think we can fix it. Okay, and then, just like all of us, I think the beauty of serving on, a, on an elder team with 10 men is that the desire... Now, I'm, I may get my feelings hurt if we don't take my way of action that I think is best, but this is where the plurality of elders really serves us well, is we put things to a vote, and if it gets voted 9 to 1, and I'm the one, then I'm not going to take my ball and go home. I'm going to say, well, praise God for the plurality of elders, because, man, these nine brothers who are all faithfully seeking to obey Jesus, all see it differently than I do. So all that to say is when you see that structural, tangible issue, you come with a, with a solution, then bring it sort of open-handed to say, hey, here's an issue. I think this might be a solution, but I'm just bringing it to you guys because I didn't know if you were aware of it or not. Does that make sense? Okay. And I will tell you that the elders want this kind of interaction. Okay. We're not, we're not trying to just sit up in the conference room and, and lead from you know, the third floor. Um, this is why we have elders that do member interviews. And in every member interview that I do, as we get to, hey, what questions you have about the church, why we do what we do or why we don't do what we don't do, I tell folks, hey, listen, this is an ongoing conversation. So if three months from now you step out of this meeting and, and you think, oh, I want to know about why we don't do this, well, you've met at least one of your elders to be able to say, hey, Stephen, help me understand why we don't do X, Okay. But all of our elders uh, are men that you as the church have recognized as capable and qualified to lead you as shepherds, which means at some level, most all of you have identified uh, that they are they, that they meet the qualifications for being an elder, and you've done your research in getting to know those men through hearing their testimony and asking questions. All right? So look for tangible structural solutions when you sense unity problems and bring them to the church leaders. Number two in the uh, implications is earlier I offered some guidelines about when to overlook an offense and when to respond to it. This is probably another layer of wisdom for that decision. So when you don't see something specific that someone can do to change um, that would bias you more to the side of overlooking rather than responding, consider overlooking that particular offense that are without specific solutions. Does that make sense? So when you see something that's an issue, you don't have a, you don't have a, a solution, and the elders yet don't have a solution, then, then I think what we're best served with for the cause of unity is to say, 
Let's commit that to prayer, and that is our action. But otherwise, I'm going to overlook that. I'm going to overlook that particular thing. All right? Another thing you can do is just pray for our deacons. In many ways, they are all structural, tangible solutions to unity problems that we're faced with or might be faced with as a congregation. And we're thankful for the work that those men do. So pray and help them in their work. A number of months ago, we sent out a church-wide survey that just said, hey, uh, what skills do you have? What equipment do you have? What days of the week are you available when it comes to thinking about issues on our buildings and grounds? And I think about 60 or 70 people in the church responded back and said, hey, I I don't have a shovel. Um, I don't know how to paint. But if you can teach me or show me the way, I'm available. And then some people said, you know, I think it was the, the email they'd waited their whole life for right? They catalog everything that they've ever gotten, and they're like three chainsaws and only two hands. All right, number four, be careful not to complain. Okay, so this is especially pertinent when you're talking with someone about a unity problem in our church, and you don't have a specific, a specific tangible um, answer in mind, okay? Be careful not to complain. It's important to talk honestly about where we're struggling as a congregation, But in times like this, we can so easily become complainers. Uh, I think in parenting, sometimes we easily, um, we parent out of correction uh, rather than parenting out of affirmation. Uh, Because when I, or, you know, even in our our marriages or in our friendships, right, I'm, when I do what I'm supposed to do, nobody comes alongside and says, hey, man, great job of doing what you knew you were supposed to do, right? Uh, it seems weird, right? But sometimes I think it is great to be able to say, hey, I watched you with your, uh, with your, with your son, and the way that you corrected or the way that you loved him through that was, that was awesome to watch. Um, I had, uh, even this last Friday, I was driving through Chick-fil-A, and a, a member uh, called me four times while I was trying to order um, just because they could see me inside Chick-fil-A, and I couldn't see them. But I'm like trying to get them to scan my free stuff on my app. And every time I get to the little code, this brother's name pops up. And I decline it four times. And then I call him back and he's like, what, you didn't want to say hi to me? I was trying to order Chick-fil-A. But I say all that to say what was super encouraging about that is that that brother was discipling a high school kid at that time. Eight o'clock in the morning on a Friday. And that was what was cool to watch. All that to say, be careful not to complain. I think so often we, we correct, and we should. Like, we're called to do that. Uh, but be careful that that correction doesn't get into just merely complaining. So, in Philippians 2.4, 14, I'm sorry, um, Paul places this emphasis on not complaining. Do not complain, he says, and you will shine like stars in this dark world as you hold forth the word of life. So not complaining is a sign that we trust the good providence of our wise Lord and Master. Okay, what a witness to a lost world without that same comfort and trust. Then finally, number five, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. So I'm always intrigued that while the apostles clearly cared deeply about the church unity, their immediate concern was much more limited. All they wanted to do, it seems was to stop the Hellenist widows from being neglected. 
Nothing about living together in unity. Nothing about having plenty. Nothing about equality. Just stop bad stuff from happening. But the power of God's Spirit, what happens was way bigger than that. So why then does Paul, I'm sorry, does Luke record the names of all seven men in the congregation put forward as deacons? This is what Patterson was noting. Stephen, Philip, Procurus, uh, Nicanor, Tim, uh, Timon, etc. Okay? So if we all venture a little speculation, it's because they're all Greek names. And that's remarkable. Okay? This was a majority Hebrew congregation, as best we can tell. It wasn't unheard of for Hebrews to have Greek names, but it seems extremely likely that if that if not all seven, at least most of these men were from the Hellenist minority. Don't you love that? It's like a little hidden punchline to the whole story. A little treat that Luke sneaks into the details. That the Hebrews in this congregation loved unity so much that they bent over backwards to take care of the Hellenist sisters, even to the point of entrusting their own widows to these brothers from an unfamiliar Greek culture. Remember, it wasn't the, it wasn't the apostles that appointed the seven. It was, it was the body. It was the body. Romans 12.10 puts it this way. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's like a competition to see who can lavish the most honor on each other. And who wins in that congregation or in that competition? Well, the church does right? And the name of Christ does when we outdo one another in showing honor. So our job isn't simply to achieve fairness or equality or any other judicial sounding standard. It's to outdo one another in showing honor. So just like Acts 6 uh, in, in the church in Jerusalem did, and we'll talk a bit more about that next week, what feels unjust to the minority may often feel generous to the majority. Okay, let me say that again. What feels unjust to the minority may often feel generous to the majority. So our goal should never be to simply be fair. It should always be to love. Fairness is not our goal. Love is. So when you feel our unity threatened as a church, this is what you need to think about. How can I outdo him in showing honor? How can I outdo her in showing honor. And it goes without saying, but I also know my own sinful heart, that question is not through gritted teeth, right? It's not, how can I outdo him? Like it's from a place of humility. Why? Because unity is the goal. God's reconciled the people to himself. So how can I lay aside my own preferences and outdo that brother or that sister in showing honor? So you feel like particular needs are being ignored? Talk about it, especially if you have some constructive advice. But above all else, ask yourself, how can you outdo the one you're talking to in showing honor? You feel like someone's comments are clumsy or offensive because they're ignorant, their comments are ignorant? Then ask yourself, how can I help them by outdoing them and showing honor? How can I bring that to their attention? Something happens in the news, perhaps, that you find profoundly disturbing. Some of your brothers and sisters are scratching their heads because they just don't get what's got you so worked up. We'll help them understand it better. 
seeking to outdo them in showing honor, right? Outdo one another in showing honor. Remember, 1 John reads, we love because he first loved us. How true is that? That we are able to love because Christ first loved us. That's the power behind our love as Christians. That's what we can all do. That's what we've been talking about is outdoing one another, showing honor to pursue unity and to squelch disunity because we see that as our responsibility and our stewardship. So because Jesus loved us, the Spirit lives in our heart, enabling us to do things we could not otherwise do. Okay, Because Jesus loved us, he set as an example of how to suffer for his glory, entrusting ourselves to the Heavenly Father, who is perfectly good and perfectly in control. And because Jesus loved us, we're forgiven of everything we ever did that was wrong at the cost of the death of the Son of God. And that forgiveness can't help but well up into love for one another. Okay, because Jesus loved us, we have hope of eternity with him in heaven, and the heavenly reward drives us to earthly faithfulness. Okay, because Jesus first loved us, we fight to protect unity. We remember why the parts of the Hagia Sophia stuck together. It's because they had that special property. And our special property is God's love shown through us by God's Spirit. So we become like the self-healing church that I talked about a few minutes ago. And so Acts 6-7, the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Praise God for that. May that be our own experience here. Let me pray for us, then we'll take a few questions. God, we're grateful for our time together this morning. Father, we pray that you would help us to be unifiers. God, that we would um, be grieved over disunity in our midst. Father, we'd be grieved over even our own uh, desire to prop up our agendas or to prop up our, um, our hurts. And rather, Lord, help us to deal with those in a way that honors you. And so, God, we pray that, yes, as we, as we have offended another brother, may we go uh, even in repentance before that brother can come to us. And yet, Lord, when we've offended another brother, when they come to us, Father, may we seek a place of humility to repent and to confess our sin and to be reconciled to our brother because that brings honor to your name. God, we're grateful that because uh, you saw fit to send your own son to be sacrificed, Lord, to, to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay the penalty for sin. Father, we've been reconciled to you. So God, how much more so, because you've loved us first, ought we to love one another? God, we're incapable of doing that in our own natural state because we're sinful and we want what we want. So God, we pray that you would help us to love one another well that you would protect unity in this church. And Father, that when those um, divisions and and fissures come, God, that we would deal with them in an appropriate, God-honoring way. And we pray that this would be to your praise and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Any questions or comments in follow-up? Yes. Yeah. Are there, is that 
flexible? Are there other areas that might come up sometime? Like, so, let me make sure I understand your question, Catherine. Is your question that, um, like in the front of the member directory, you see what deacons we have and what they're doing. Is your question, are there other things that we could use other deacons for? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's part of it is, you know, even as the elders got together um, and we're praying through deacon roles, is uh, we, we honestly just tried to prioritize what we felt like we had to have in as many of those roles as we felt like we had qualified men that could serve in those roles. And, uh, and those are the ones that we, that we went after. And then there was another one like the Deacon of Bookstall, for instance, that came about um, on, partly because we had a staff guy who was giving a lot of time and attention to that, and we had a brother who was committed to being there, loved what we were doing in that resort, in that ministry, and wanted to own it himself. And so we created that Deacon of Bookstall. But yes, like, so I'll give you like a, one that I think we feel acutely all the time is Deacon of Hospitality is that, you know, so much of what we do as a church, um, you know, whether it's Sunday evening um, church conferences or whether it's like the reception that was here yesterday or it's a women's, um, you know, conference or into the light or whatever, is that that ends up falling on the, on the persons who have organized that event. Whereas when, uh, when into the light happens and, and all of that administration all falls under the person who's organized an event, there's a deacon of safety who's out roaming with a team of people that can handle that issue. So it takes some of the ability for that person to focus on the actual portion of, of the teaching that night in the logistics of making that night happen. Is that, does that answer your question? Well, I just thought maybe that's because I was thinking we should yeah. train Yeah. Or if we had a suggestion. Sure. Well, that would, be, that would be one that comes to my mind quickly. Do Cole or Shelby, do you all have one that you would add to that? I think those are ones that qu- that, that could quickly comes to mind. Maybe deacon of, or yeah, yeah, hospitality would fall into that. Good question. Other questions or comments? Yes. You sent so I'm thinking of Philippians two where Paul writes uh, two three. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of, of others. In the culture at large, there's kind of this idea of uh, victim status or, you know, majority culture, oppressing minority culture in whatever context that might be. Do you feel a tension between uh, the idea of look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others as only applying to the majority culture versus not speaking that in the church to everybody? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Cliff's question is... um, do we, Philippians 2, 3, um, seeking the, our own, not our own interest, but the interest of others, is there, do we feel a tension between how do we reconcile that uh, against sort of the majority-minority culture conversation? Is that fair? I, I th- and I think what I'd say to that, Cliff, is, is part of what we're trying to, to say, and even what we were pr- trying to say last week, is as we think about this majority-minority culture conversation, um, is we're really thinking about those that are alienated in any way, right? And so in our church where I think Trey mentioned a couple last week or a couple weeks ago, last week, that the median age of those joining was 26 or 27, whatever it was, that is it possible that some of our senior adults that are in their 80s, 90s are feeling marginalized or alienated because the church that they once knew is getting much younger? And so 
maybe they feel like the things that we program or the things that we do or, or even the, the, the language we speak is creating some alienation. And, uh, but the, 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 the goal of gospel unity is to say that we are first and foremost unified as a diverse people because that's how God, that's how God designed it. That's where all this is culminating. And so we're trying to say, but because where we're going is going to be every tongue, tribe, and nation, we pray that our church here will fit us for heaven where we're going, though imperfectly. And so by recognizing that majority-minority culture, what we're not trying to say is that there aren't culturally uh, real, a real sense where, um, let's say in our church, uh, a person of color is going to be a minority. Whereas if, if I went to St. James uh, down the street, I would be a minority in that church congregation. But we're trying to say is that we're not trying to dismiss this as, oh, that doesn't matter. What we're trying to say is where are there people that feel marginalized or that feel like they've been alienated? And how can we then, as the church, seek not our own interest, but the interest of others? And part of the way we do that is just simply sitting down and saying, hey, you know, tell me, what's your name? Where are you from? What's your major? Or what do you do for work? Or, man, how, how long have you been at the church? And what, what might we be able to do in praying for one another? And so I think we're trying to just heighten the awareness that, yes, God is making a, a people for himself. He's doing that right here at UBC. So we're not all 20-something. Um, and in the beauty of that is we can lay down our own preferences and seek the interests of others for gospel unity, which may at times, back to sort of what we were talking about earlier, it may at times mean structural, tangible changes. But it may also just be that we need to just heighten our own awareness to get to know our brother and sister of, of any number of, of differences. Does that, does that get at your question? Yeah, I Yeah. That's not just a message. That's right. Yeah, 100% agree. There's, there's never going to be a situation where we can achieve perfect balance. Yeah. And so the overlying message there is that even, even when I'm in the minority culture, I'm still to look to the yeah. interests of others. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we learned from, um, even from Acts 6, right, that the, the seven men were Greek in nature. They were, in a sense, promoted from within the minority culture to lead in the majority, the majority in both cultures. And in some ways, and maybe someone else could speak to this, but I think uh, when we're talking majority and minority culture, that's not in the Bible. Like that, that's a made up, that's made up terminology. But what we are trying to do is we're trying to say, gosh, but we also operate within a culture. And in that culture, some are marginalized and some are in certain ways, right? And some are not. I mean, so, but because we're united as brothers in Christ, yes, I agree that regardless of the 80-year-old um, or the person of color, or the, you know, the working class, whatever, all of us are held first and foremost responsible to the principles of God's Word. And so we want to look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And I think that's part of, um, if you all were able to be here on the Gospel and Race Conference, when Mario shared his testimony, one of the things I loved most about what Mario shared was he was bringing that perspective to us from someone who is a person of color in a majority uh, white church. And, and the, the over arching message that Mario was sharing is, yes, there are things that I have to look past to be here, but this is where I want to be. This is where the Lord has me, and I joyfully worship with you all, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this is ways we can all grow, but let's not pretend like that it isn't 
challenging at times, particularly for a person of color or from another country to come into this context, you know, where, where we are majority white. But yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Did, did that, okay. Yes, Caleb. So yeah. the majority, mm. uh, and they've been unnoticed. Yeah. Like so many different ways. Sure. Like I, I hear of, you know, African American brothers who like they always talk about how they have to like de escalate a situation in the elevator and you know like how that burden's always on them and we never see them. Yeah. And so consider the interests of others, you know, above your own does apply to all and it feels almost like there's an unbalance because it's being dragged at the majority so Right. Um and I think I don't think that's a hypocritical thing at all. Because, like, for example, let's say drunkenness applies to everything. But you're not going to be giving that exhortation to those who don't ever drink alcohol or um, who don't struggle with it. You're going to be giving that exhortation more to those who, you know, are more entangled in it. Yeah. Um, and so just in the same way you might be talking to one friend more about alcoholism but not another yeah. uh, because of the way there's different entanglement in it. I thought that's the same thing going on with the majority minority yep. because the majority doesn't see what the minority has had to deal with them, um, you know, given so much of the consideration of others that we haven't even seen. Yeah, I, I think, Caleb, I think to your point is um, I think that the way forward for us as a church well, two, is two things. Is I think that, yes, I think our, our, our brothers, let's take, let's take race for, for an example. Our brothers of color have had to bear a, a, a different burden than we've had. So in that sense, we are very much talking about the majority culture being a uh, color and non, or a white uh, issue. And, but yet, what we're not trying to do is we're not assuming that the 90 of us in here are going to fix what happens outside the church. What we are saying is that not on our watch in this place are we going to play to that, um, to that racism or to, to those stereotypes and yet at the same time, I think in the majority culture, we have, we, at this point, I think we have more learning to do, more burden to bear to help our brothers of color in that burden they've been carrying for much longer than we ever knew, right? And so some of that's just having your eyes open. But I'll also go back to, to Mario's testimony. And a brother was having coffee with us on Friday. You know, he said, Mario ended his time with, man, you know, at the end of the day, the only thing... I don't only want to talk about these issues, right? Because that's not all that makes up who Mario is. And so he doesn't want to just always talk about issues of, uh, of race in America. But he does bring a particular example or, or you know, a perspective, and that's one of the things that I think we can dialogue with persons of color, okay? Um, so he just shouldn't be your person that you always go to when you have a you know, question about, about race, right? Go to the Bible, Go to, go to Philippians 2. Examine your heart there. Go to books that might help you be educated on, on, on the, um, you know, as we think about just, again, race. Think about um, great migration. Things that can educate us on what, how we've gotten to be where we are in the majority culture. And then seek understanding um, from a brother of color that can bring a different perspective than you can. So, yes, I think, Caleb, you're right in that we have, we, we're, 
we're trying to play catch up, and, but we first are saying we've got to identify that there's a problem in order to know how to, okay, now I know what the test is, so to speak. Now I know how to study, right? And so I think what we're trying to identify is that disunity and uh, divisions exist, but we're trying to root them out because finally the Lord has reconciled the people to himself and fitting us for a place that is multi-ethnic, every tongue, tribe, and nation, and we're trying to image that here. Would anybody add anything to that? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So Shelby was just noting that practically Romans is going to help us walk it out, right? So open your home, um, have somebody into your home that's from whatever you know, eighty-year-old or person of color or you know, young married or whatever. Have somebody in your home. Share a meal with them. What books are you reading? Maybe read that. Read a book together. What are you studying? What are you thinking about? What conferences are you going to? Um, what podcasts are you listening to? Um, and how can you do that with another person that can grow that perspective? That's great. And I, Stephen, I'd add that one great way to do that in showing love to one another is just by seeking understanding from somebody who may be in the mind. Yeah. That's right. That's good. Yeah, so just to look, find somebody that looks different from you for any number of reasons and get to know them, right? I mean, I really do believe that story is a great equalizer of man. Hey, tell me your story. Where are you from? What do you know? Where are you, you know, all these things. I think, you know, I, sometimes I feel like, a, uh, you know, like podcasts have those sponsors. Um, and so that, let's take a brief minute to recognize such and such from our sponsors. I feel like UBC's sponsorship is the member directory. Um, and so... I, this is a great way, is if you're regularly praying for the people on this page, you don't have to know anything about this person other than what we've talked about this morning. So you can, you know, whatever, whatever date today is, the 4th, you could turn and just pray um, for somebody on that page, something as simple as, God, we pray that Colton Quarter would grow in his outdoing uh, one another and showing honor. Amen. You can pray there for every person on that page. And how would that not serve us if we trust in a, in a big sovereign God? And that's the beauty of it, is just pray that God would do what God does in and through the hearts of his people. And then I think as you meet Colton Quarter, you will have prayed for that brother, and it will, inform, it will warm your heart relationally to meeting him. You're like, oh man, we prayed for you last night. I mean, think about getting that call or that text or that interaction today. Is, you know, did, have you, if you've already prayed to the mayor director, if you haven't, is what if you just found a person this morning and, and in humility you just went to encourage that brother? You just said, hey, bro, I prayed for you this morning. I don't know anything negative that can come from that. All right, hey, let's pray and then we're going we're gonna to transition. It's about 10 13 and we'll head over to the, uh, to the main service. God, we're grateful for uh, time together this morning. We pray that, uh, that even now as we, as we transition from this space, 
uh, to the main hall, God, where we will uh, sing, um, pray, we'll hear and see uh, and listen to the word. God, we pray that we would do that as the redeemed people of God, unified in Christ, um, set apart for his glory. And Father, that you would encourage us and embolden us. And Father, that we would, uh, that we would worship as those that have been extended the, the blessing of God in uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.